test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. You may be seated. Great singing this morning. Amen? That's awesome. That's awesome. Thanks, Ben, for all that you do to help us with that. Uh, thank you, Monty, for coming up. And if you were not here at the beginning part of our assembly, uh, we had a, just a really outstanding and encouraging and enthusiastic and inspiring report on what's happening with the ministries of, of Eastern European Missions. Uh, if you did not hear that, I would really encourage you to spend some time with Monty before you leave today. You're going to be out by your, your kiosk out in the family room, right? Uh, go out there. Uh, there's a lot of information. He, he'll be here until you know the cows come home talking to you about what's happening in Eastern Europe in the former Soviet Union and how Bibles are being sent into public schools and all kinds of wonderful things like that. So if you miss that, make sure that you see him before you leave. Now, we're going to be looking at this text, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this, this entire text that Lloyd just read for us. But before we do that, we want to ask God to bless us. So that's bow our heads and join our hearts and ask God to give us the eyes that see and the ears that hear. Father, what a blessing to come together and to know that we're not alone, that, that, that we are surrounded by brothers and sisters in this big city that recognize that you're the supreme value of the universe, even though there are so many who don't see that and recognize that and esteem you as such. And so our prayer, Father, is that as we come together and have the, the experience of, of joy and, and the sense, the, the keen awareness of your nearness to us, that we can take that, Father, wherever we go throughout the rest of this week and to be love and to be a blessing and to be generous and kind and to be the Christ wherever we go, Father. Represent him as his people, his disciples. And we pray this with all of our strength, Father, in the name of Jesus, that it be so today. Amen. You know, it's going to sound a little ironic, but the Bible does not really talk a lot about how to live as a Christian. The Bible talks a lot about how to live as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. The word Christian, and, and it's a great word, that's, that's, that's who we are only appears three times in the Bible where the word disciple appears over 250 times. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus would tell stories. He would tell parables. 
he would tell stories in such a way that, that people had to stop and they had to think and they had to ponder and they had to contemplate and they visually could see it in their mind. And these parables told us about God and it told us a lot about ourselves and it told us about the will of God. And it was all to help us to understand how to live as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. That what it means to be a disciple is that wherever we go, we represent the Christ. That we live as Jesus, as if Jesus were in the room. We live as if Jesus himself were in the home or the kitchen or the classroom or the workspace. And these stories become a really a fundamental way of us to understand how we live in this world representing the kingdom of God. Now the most famous of all of these stories that he tells in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's known all over the world. In fact, people that don't even really have a religious background know the story and get the gist of it, that it's about doing good and it's about looking out for other people. But Jesus tells this story because there's a backstory to it that brings the parable to life. And the backstory begins with a question. Jesus is together. Here's this lawyer, this expert in the law who stands up, and he asks a question found in verse 25. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right off the bat, where you know Luke gives us kind of this insider's glance as what's going on here. Here is this lawyer who stands up, which in the Middle East is um, even to this day. In fact, we we sort of get this when a woman comes into the room or comes to the table. We all stand if we're a gentleman, right? We stand. We get that. Happens in the Middle East. When somebody comes into a room and you want to show them honor, you stand up before them. He also calls Jesus what? Teacher, which is a, a, a compliment. It's, a, it's, it's a, a term that they wouldn't just use for anybody, but he recognizes that there's something special about Jesus. So he stands in front of him, and he says, Teacher, but Luke says, Ah, but he wanted to test him. So Luke is giving us a little bit of insight into this lawyer, into this expert in the law. There's a little bit of hypocrisy. There's some bad manners here because you're wanting to show some... <coughs> some good manners in terms of standing up and paying the compliment, but what you really want on the, on the inside is to bring Jesus down or to trap him somehow. And he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the question itself is just flawed to pieces. What do you ever do to inherit anything? You don't, you don't inherit something because of what you do. You inherit something because of who you are a son or a daughter or a family member. You're somebody dear to that person, so you inherit. It's not because you've done anything. That's work and wages. So just at the base level of the question, there's some flaws in it, but, but that's not the only thing. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see what he's done? He's kind of factored God out of this thing that, you know, as a, as a Pharisee in the first century, he is all about Torah, and he's all about the oral traditions, and he's all about living out the, the, uh, the words of the prophets in such a way that the promises of God will come back to Israel and they'll get the land. It's about what I do, not what God does. It's what I do to trigger the promises of God. But then at the same time, he already knows the answer to that. It's a test, Luke says. He already knows what the answer is. What he really wants to know is if Jesus is on the right page or not. If Jesus has the right answers. If Jesus is in the right crowd. 
And Jesus answers the question in a very wise way. He answers the question with a question. What does Torah, what does the law say? How do, how do you read it? And the lawyer gives the perfect answer. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19. He says, this is what you do. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, exactly, do this and what? Live. Do this and live. Now, that has given some people heartburn. The fact that Jesus said that has given people through the centuries a little bit of heartburn because it seems that he's saying, you don't need me. You don't need the Messiah. All you have to do is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor, and you're in. Do this and live. Seems like maybe Jesus is factoring out the Savior. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. That brings up question two, though. The lawyer asks another question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, up to this point, they've been exchanging information about the law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you read in the law? The law says this. Leviticus, law says this in Deuteronomy. And instead, but who is my neighbor? Instead of answering that question with more information, Jesus tells a story. Now, again, why does Jesus tell a story? I mean, they've got this thing about information interaction. It's information being exchanged with, with each other. It's, it's a teaching place. Why does Jesus tell the story? Why didn't he just give information? Why didn't he just give him some more law? It's because he wants the, this, this expert in the law to slow down for a minute and to think deeply about what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. Would you agree that you can talk a lot about love, that it can be intellectualized, that you can sit down and you can talk about love all day, but never be a lover of other human souls? I mean, this guy speaks Greek, so he knows that there are four Greek words that represent love in the Greek language, which the Bible is written in. There's, there's agape, and there's storge, and philos, and eros, and he could talk all day about these kinds of things, but never actually understand what it means to love God with everything that you are, not having any niche, any, any folder, any domain in your body, your, 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 your realm of being, any of that be separated from the loving God, and a second like it, he'll say in another place, to love your neighbor. So that's why he's telling this story is to really drive this point home in an emotional way, an intellectual way, a convicting way, in a way that's going to change the expert in the law's heart. And so he begins with a parable. Now, to understand the parable, it's, it's important to know a couple of things about Samaritans. Samaritans were not, as you know, if you've been reading the Gospels uh, any length of time, the Samaritans are not the favorite people of the Jewish nation. They're just not. It goes way back in their history for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's been this animosity and this tension, this rivalry, this competition between the places where you worship God. The Samaritans actually came from the middle section of Israel, one called Israel during that period of time. It was known as Palestine, but they came from that middle section. You have way up in the north, northern Galilee. You had south Judah with Jerusalem in the south and the Dead Sea. And in the middle where the city of Samaria was located, you had the Samaritans. And their history goes all the way back to the 8th century B.C. That was already after the time that, uh, that Jeroboam, coming out of exile out of Egypt, after Solomon had died, he comes back into the land of Israel and he puts a question to Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, and says, you know, what are you going to do here now that your father is gone? 
Are you going to keep working the people like he did, or are you going to give them rest? And you know how that story ended. Rehoboam decides that he wants to be a tough guy. He wants to be Clint Eastwood with a crown. And he's going to show everybody that he's tougher than his dad. He is more, he is, he is more powerful and more authoritative than his dad. And what happens in doing so, he splits. He splits Israel. You've got ten tribes going to the north. Out of the twelve, you've got two in the south. And because there were places of worship that were set up in the north to keep people from going back to Jerusalem and reuniting with those two tribes in the south, there were idols and there was, there was all kinds of erroneous kinds of worship that developed among the people that dragged their hearts away from God. And the prophets began to go up into northern Israel and say, you know, this is what God says, if you don't change... If you don't live according to Torah, if you don't love God, if you don't worship God, if you're not one with God and God is, is angry with you, there's going to be this judgment and it's going to be bad. And it turned out to be the Assyrians. Some of the cruelest people who have ever lived on the planet. Just cruel in the way that they treated people. And these Assyrians came down and in 721 B.C., about eight, about seven and a half, eight centuries before the time of Jesus, they come and they turn those ten tribes into dust. They carry most of the people, the people that had worth, the people that had education, the people that had some value in whatever the Assyrian uh, 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 hierarchy of values was all about. They carried those people off into captivity. And you know, those people really kind of disappeared. There was another group of people that came from the, the north, from the area of Samaria. They went back into Jerusalem, and they began to settle what is known as the Western Hills, which is just to the southwest of the, of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The rest of the people stayed there in Samaria. And the Syrians had a way of repopulating an area, mainly with, with their army, but it was army basically made up from people all over the world. And so as those army soldiers from the Assyrians came in and settled, the Samaritans were actually the Jewish people who intermarried with these people from all of these other countries and all of these other places that represented the Assyrian Empire, and the Samaritans were the product of those marriages. Now, you know how this thing goes. Uh, those two tribes in the south are taken to the, into captivity as well. Seventy years later, they come back and they repopulate the entire land, but mainly around Jerusalem and up in the north, staying away from that middle section. And they really thought that those Samaritans had just betrayed God. They thought that they had, because they had intermarried with those other people, that they had somehow compromised their faith. They, became, they, they began to be seen as half-breeds and people that had sold out the faith. And, and the rabbis during the time of Jesus began to, 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 to fabricate all of these laws and all of these teachings about how the Jewish people were to interact with these Samaritans because if you were with a Samaritan, you would become unclean. Now, those are the Samaritans. Now, today, there are Samaritans living in the land. There's not a lot. There's a, a couple of hundred uh, Samaritans that are recognized as such living in Israel today. But there's more to being a Samaritan than being a Samaritan. A Samaritan can be anybody you dislike. For a Democrat, a Samaritan is a Republican. Now, we don't really want to say that out loud, but a Republican has a Democrat. We're not going to say this out loud either, but it's a Democrat, right? If you go to the University of Texas A&M, 
Who is your Samaritan? Alabama. I won't say Texas. If you're a Texas Longhorn, who is your Samaritan? Oklahoma. You know, it's a, you know, you see how this works? If you're from Oklahoma, you know who your Samaritan is? The Longhorns. That's how it works. And it works even to this day. I have a friend, a very, very good friend, who means a lot to me in the world, but he has a Samaritan in mind. He graduated from the Naval Academy in December of, of, um, of, 19, uh, of January, in January of 1941. In December 7th, 1941, he was in the bottom of the USS Maryland during the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. 1941, we're well over half a century away from that when he and I begin a friendship. His car's going out on the, the, the you know, just falling apart on him. He needs to get another car. I said, hey, you, you know, they, these Japanese cars are really great. Over half a century later, he says, you know what? I'll never buy a Japanese car. I'll never do that. He had spent all of his military career in the Pacific. Um, it just had not gotten to that place where he felt like he could get close to someone from that country. Samaritan, for us, can be somebody that we're uncomfortable with. Somebody that we think that if, if we were to spend much time with them, there would be something about us that might get compromised. That there might be something that other people might see compromised in us. In us. And so he tells this story, and there's this, this Samaritan in it. And there is, in this story, this man who is on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles at Wines, through the hills there, very, very dangerous. It's an extremely dangerous place because of the bandits that were there. Uh, Strabo tells about Pompey wiping out uh, a, a whole, a, a, sort of a small army of, of brigands and thieves in, near, near Jericho. Uh, the Crusaders, long after the time of Christ, the road is still dangerous. They build a fort halfway between Jerusalem and, and Jericho to protect people that are traveling on that road because it is dangerous. And here's this guy that's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And somewhere along the line, he gets jumped. And he's, he's beaten, which means that he probably tried to defend himself or he resisted. He's left on the side of the road. He has been robbed. He has been stripped. And he is unconscious. There is no way that he can be identified. You used to be able, in fact, you still can in a lot of places in Israel, still identify people by the clothing that they wear or the kind of hat that they wear. And so he's on the side of the road without any way of, of communicating who he is, whether or not he's even alive or not. And here comes this priest. Priest is headed to Jericho. It's probably where he lives. Priests were part of the, 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 the arist, uh, aristocracy of Israel. Priests probably had money. Priests rode horses because they had affluence. And so he is riding to Jericho when he sees his fellow on the side of the road. Now, everybody that hears the story why Jesus is telling it, they understand that this guy can help this guy on the side of the road. He's got a horse. And he's got means. He's got affluence. He's got means in which to help this guy. But this priest is really struggling with something because for a priest, it's all about being clean, ritually, ceremonially clean. During the time of Jesus, uh, Ken Bailey, uh, who writes a, a lot about the parables of, of Jesus and about the, the culture of, of, of Jesus 
and, and how his teachings are, are meshed with what was happening during that period of time culturally, he says, you know, there was uh, a time when the sacrifices were being made, the daily sacrifices were being made, that a gong was hit, and those priests who had allowed themselves to become unclean had to gather by the eastern gate, not inside the temple precincts itself, the immediate precincts itself, but they would gather on the outside, and it was a disgrace and a humiliation. They had to stand before the people as they were going to the temple and basically demonstrate to them by standing at that gate at that time, that they could not be used or could help these people have a mediator to God. And so it was a, it was a huge humiliation for a priest to become unclean. And on top of that, it took a long time to get clean, and it was very, very costly. Do you know the price of a perfect, unblemished red heifer first century prices? Incredibly expensive because they were rare. A red heifer had to be reduced to ashes, and you know the story out of Leviticus about becoming clean again. And so here's this guy. He's got all the ways in the world, the means in the world, the affluence in the world to help this guy. But it becomes sort of dangerous for him to do so because of what might happen to him or what somebody might think about him if he became unclean, especially if the guy is dead or a Samaritan. And so he passes through, passes by on the other side. Do you know this guy up on the screen? Do we have a picture of Phil Robertson up there? We have a priest. Next slide. Levite, next slide. You, gotta know, you, you know who this is, right? This is Phil Robertson. Elder in a church right now, involved in ministries all over the world, and you know how he became a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth? Somebody decided that they didn't care what somebody might think if they saw them in a bar and they went up to him while he was drunk and shared the gospel with him. Didn't care what somebody thought if they saw him in a bar talking to a drunk. Well, there's also the Levite. If you go one slide back, Brody, we've got the Levite. Levite is a guy that's going to work for the priest. The priest is going to be the affluent guy. The Levite's going to be following. The priest is going to be on the horse. Levite's going to be on foot. Same issue there. He's going to be struggling with, with what it's going to mean for him to help this guy. And then here comes the Samaritan. Now, this is, this is really kind of a dicey place for Jesus to go in this story. Okay, this, this, is, this, is, what, this is what the first century Jews would have heard if Jesus were telling that story in 1875 Dodge City. He said, imagine... A Plains Indian, 1875 version, came leading a horse into town with a cowboy that had been shot. And he's leading that horse with that cowboy down the middle of that town, and he goes to a saloon, and he gets a hotel room over the saloon and pays for it and stays the night with that cowboy until that cowboy is able to ride again, taking all of the expense himself. You know, quite frankly, there was a time when that Native American, that Plains Indian, would have been lucky to even get out of Dodge. Even if he had brought that cowboy in, finding him shot on the side of the road. And so all of a sudden, there is quiet in that room as he says, here comes the Samaritan who's riding as well. And the Samaritan sees this fella in need, 
And he crosses from where he is over to where the guy in need is. And he uses oil and wine and bandages to take, to, to, to take care of him. He puts him on his horse. And you know what this Samaritan does? The Samaritan who has the affluence to be able to ride, this Samaritan makes himself a servant. Because if you have affluency and you're not a servant, you're going to ride. The servant is the one that is going to lead that animal to where it needs to go with, with the, the man with honor on the back of it. So the Samaritan p- puts him on the, on the animal and leads him to an inn. And he pays the price that the man can't pay because he's been robbed and he's been damaged and he's been torn and he's been stripped and he's been beaten and he's been left unconscious on the side of the road. He doesn't know where he is. He can't take care of himself. He doesn't have the means to take care of himself unless this guy that nobody expects comes and pays the price for him. April 4th, 1968. Memphis, famous day James Earl Ray murders Martin Luther King Jr. shoots him out on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel April 3rd 1968 Martin Luther King's preaching for the very last time and he uses this text in the last sermon he preaches and that sermon is known as uh, I've been to the mountain sermon and doesn't know if he's going to go to the other side ironically you know he talks about god taking him up and he's seen the other side and he's seen the future but he doesn't know if he's going to be able to enjoy it with everybody doesn't know what's going to happen ironically the next day he is murdered to me some of the most important words in that sermon are the two questions that martin luther king jr poses to those listeners who are hearing him with passion preach about the good samaritan He says, you know, those first two, the priest and the Levite, when they saw that man as beat as he was on the side of the road, they asked the question, what happens to me if I stop? Could be that the robbers were still in the area. They could be robbed themselves. To get off of that horse or to stop and to tend for this man could have put them in danger. And they were asking the question, what happens to me if I stop. He said, along comes the Samaritan. The Samaritan asks the question, what happens to him if I don't? What happens to him if I don't stop? 2013, October, it's a cold day in Buffalo, New York. It's a bus driver by the name of, of um, bus driver by the name of uh, Darnell Barton. He's driving kids to school. He's crossing the bridge. And as he's crossing, and there's a lot of traffic on the road, he's crossing, he recognizes that there's this woman on the wrong side of the guardrail. This is a woman that he can tell by being on the, wrong, on the other side of that guardrail. That there's something wrong. She might be wanting to jump into that river and end her life. He's got timetables. He's got kids. He's got a bus. There's traffic. He's got a job. Needs the money. But he pulls up and he opens up that door and he begins to talk to that woman. And he gets out of his bus, stopping traffic, and gets over that guardrail on the same side that she is. And he talks to her and talks to her and talks to her and talks to her until the ambulance is able to to get there and to help her. 
Funny thing is, the CCTV picked up not only all of the traffic that was passing this woman, but before Darnell Barton got there, there was a pedestrian that walked right past her and never stopped. And asked, honey, what's wrong? Cyclist went by and never stopped. Honey, what's wrong? Darnell Barton in a school bus with crazy kids in the back drives up and sees the woman and asks, what happens to her if I don't stop? It's not always that dramatic. Some, sometimes it's, you know, it's the really easy stuff. A couple of years ago, I'm headed to ACU Summit, driving uh, an old Volvo uh, within the speed limits. You know me. <laughs> within the speed limits, out in the middle of nowhere, about 20, 25 miles away from Ballinger, when all of a sudden I see pieces of my tire. That tire just exploded. Had to pull over. Had this gigantic flat tire in that Volvo. I go, well, you yeah, know, that's great. Change this thing really, really quickly open up the trunk, and there is the, the most sissified, nerdish-looking lug wrench you've ever seen in your life. And on top of that, the guy that had put this tire on at, at I don't want to say discount tires because I don't know if that's where it was, but that's where we shop. The guy put that thing on there and tightened those lugs down so tightly that, I, I mean, I'm, st- I'm not a little guy. And I'm on top of that lug wrench, and it's not moving. It's just, it's just not built for, you know, for, for strength. Well, I'm going, you know, how in the world am I, you know, there's nothing, there, there's, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I go, how am I ever going to get this thing fixed? And all of a sudden I hear this truck come rumbling up and I turn around, it's an old beat up truck. I mean, it's just a, it's just an old clunker. And I go, oh man, here it comes. These two old guys get out, they come walking over and they go, what happened? And I'm thinking, kind of obvious, it's flat. I say, it's good to see you. Man, I got a flat here, and this lug wrench is not very cool. And one guy said to the other, he said, well, you know, it is a Volvo. <laughs> he said, but I think we might have a lug wrench in the back, and went back, and he got one of those cross lug wrenches where you have a you know fitting for each lug wrench on the ends, went back, found one. The guy said, you know what? You don't look like, uh, I mean, you look kind of like an accountant. You don't look like you know how to change a, a flat tire. I said, I'll have you know, I'm not an accountant, I'm a preacher. They said, well, now we know you don't know how to change a tire. <laughs> we'll change it for you. And those guys changed the tire, and they said, you got a spare? I said, yeah, and I pulled out my spare. <laughs> Donut, not the kind you can eat. They put that donut on there, and they said, you know, fella, uh, I think we need to probably follow you into town so that we we make sure you get there safely. And those guys did. I'm driving way under the speed limit because of that donut. And those guys stayed right with me. And when I pulled into that tire shop there in Ballinger to get that tire changed, they honked, and off they were gone. And I don't know who they were. But I think they probably asked when they saw how I was dressed, what happens to him if we don't stop? <laughs> Two quick thoughts and we're done. If you want to live a good Samaritan life, you got to, number one, let your life be interruptible. 
You've got to let your life be interruptible. I have a really, really good friend, a shepherd in the church out on the West Coast. It says, you know, and it was so profound when he said it to me about 30 years ago that I wrote it in the back of my, my little New Testament. A fellow by the name of Lou Smith says, if the devil can't make you bad, he will always make you busy. How many times were you not a good Samaritan because your life wasn't interruptible because you were busy? And then the second thing is let love for God shape your approach to people. That, that's just not talk about it in terms of intellectual propositions. What does it mean to have love for God? For all that, that God is, for all that God represents, for all that God has done for you? John will say towards the end of the, the New Testament, he says, we love because he first loved us. You let your life be interruptible and you contemplate on the love of God and you allow that to shape your approach to people. Let's go back to that, that question that I said we'd get back to. You, you know, it does sound like when Jesus says do this and live that you don't really need a Savior, right? You don't really need a Savior. Just love God all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Done. Do this and live. Done. The problem is, who has ever done that perfectly? Who has ever done that perfectly? You know, I, I, I love God, and I love my neighbor, and I love those people that are really close to me, Ellen's so easy to love. My kids are easy to love. My granddaughter, easy to love. My friends, easy to love. My church, easy to love. But nobody in the history of the world has ever loved God or loved their neighbor as themselves perfectly. And when we try to do that, what we've done is really kind of factored, factored out. We have factored out the Messiah. We're basically saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life, that it's about me and what I do. Not recognizing that spiritually speaking and sometimes physically and intellectually and emotionally, I'm that guy on the side of the road that is so weak and so torn that sometimes I don't even know my own name. But the hope is that there was one who saw me and you and crossed over to where we were. And not only that, he became a servant. He became a servant. And as Paul will tell us that, you know, his form of servanthood wasn't to lead an animal, but his form of service as a servant and obedience was to die for us. To pay the price and to keep paying the price so that we might find ourselves with joy and peace in such a way that we're transformed and people of generosity that just it's just a gushing to bless people because of the ways that we've been blessed. And that's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth in 2016 in this city. Is to have eyes wide open, eyes wide open, knowing, knowing that the, the world can change and the, the world does change 
when people who, who have been blessed by the Messiah live as disciples, live as disciples, that they drive the car as if Jesus is driving that car. They go to the workplace and teach those kids or run those Excel spreadsheets or whatever it is that they do as if Jesus was running those spreadsheets with eyes wide open to bless people. And that's what we'd like to do right now. We're going to sing a song, and and Ben's going to lead it, and we're going to sing with all of our heart. It's a great song. But if there are ways that we can bless you today on your way, then we want you to come up and talk to these shepherds. And for the rest of us, man, when it comes to talking about the love of God and contemplating it and knowing exactly what it is that He has done to bless us, don't you just want to sing out? Let's do that right now. Let's stand and sing. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you?